Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Gerald Droz to the show. Dr. Droz is a licensed psychologist and co-founder of Powers Ferry Psychological Associates, which has four locations in Georgia. He has been in the field for over 32 years, and his practice offers assessment, therapy, and special services. Today, we will learn more about his academic journey, advice for those interested in the field of psychology, and discuss his new novel called Bird Gotta Land, The Education of a Young Psychologist, which is about a graduate student in psychology and is loosely based on his time in grad school. Dr. Droz, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Brad. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I, I love doing all the research on my guests, and uh, yours is very interesting and, and a good variety. And the timing of your novel coming out this year is just perfect. I think it's perfect for our audience to, to see and learn and hear about your experiences uh, uh, going through grad school. So just to start us off, just to uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Okay. Well, I, uh, I grew up, uh, I was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, from a uh, family that was very tight knit and involved. And uh, my uh, parents, my father uh, coached me in sports throughout my life. And my mother uh, worked at a playground and eventually became playground director. So I kind of grew up going to a playground every day after school and playing whatever sport was in season and uh, uh, had sort of a, a playful young life. Uh, you know. uh, and then I uh, 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 consider myself getting a little lost in my early adulthood and uh, found myself, found my way to a graduate program, a PhD program in psychology. Uh, in clinical psychology, and I met my wife there, who was also a uh, uh, clinical psychologist. Um, and we moved to Atlanta, opened a clinical practice here, uh, and it's gradually grown, as you described, uh, to a pretty big practice. Uh, and uh, I have three adult male children. Uh, <laughs> one of whom uh, was from my first marriage, uh, which ended when I was beginning graduate school. Uh, and uh, he's now 41 and has, I have a granddaughter with him and another one on the way. And then I have two other younger sons that are 25 and 22. And all three of them are here in Atlanta. And as I mentioned to you before we got on, we'll be going to an Atlanta Braves baseball game right after this. So, uh, it's, uh, a good life yes it sounds like it and and i should add that you are an avid baseball fan and and even in your book you you refer to uh baseball and softball in particular and and we'll talk more about the book but usually we like going through and and kind of going through your academic journey so let's go ahead and start off uh talking about your undergraduate experiences where did you attend and at what point did you know that you wanted to get your psychology degree or start your career in psychology yeah, so I have a, my story is a little different, I think, than most, or maybe they're all different. But uh, I, uh, I started off at the College of Charleston. I described myself as an undergraduate nomad. I went to three schools, uh, eventually uh, got a degree in political science and started a graduate program in international studies at the University of South Carolina. And uh, I liked the intellectual part of studying, I was studying Middle East politics and I was fascinated by it. But when it came time to talking about what kind of jobs somebody with a master's in international studies uh, worked, I realized it was either in the diplomatic corps or in intelligence. And I wasn't really interested in either of those jobs. And I had always wanted to be a psychologist. That was my first sort of job I identified when I figured out or when I learned what a psychologist did, I thought that's what I want to do. But I didn't think of myself as being able to make the kind of grades it took to get into graduate school and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So I, I sort of never really pursued it. But then when I found myself at that point, I, when I was in graduate school and in international studies, I had more intellectual confidence or more confidence in myself. And 
So I went back and got my undergraduate degree in psychology. I took a year and took a bunch of psychology courses and uh, uh, worked at a research lab uh, for another year. And uh, then I applied to graduate school and that's how I ended up uh, in uh, the psychology program at South Carolina. Okay. Well, that's a good uh, uh, overview. Now, one thing that uh, you brought up was you knew that you wanted to uh, uh, become a psychologist. In your book, you actually referred to, and I'm not sure if this was based on the reality or just, you know, uh, uh, fiction, but I believe it does apply to you where at one point, one of the uh, directors of the program uh, of your first uh, uh, few classes, I think you had to go through four in that uh, in the beginning there. He was mentioning that, um, some of you are going to go on and, and get your PhD and then continue on and become a psychologist. Others are going to go into research. So how did you know or how did you decide, knowing yourself, that you wanted to become a, a practicing psychologist instead of a research psychologist? Yeah, it was actually a fairly difficult choice for me because I did like the research uh, part of psychology. I was uh, real interested in some of the questions that academics ask and spend time uh, researching. But really, I always wanted to be a practicing psychologist working with people, trying to help people. My, you know, the, the, the way I found out what a psychologist did was from uh, Phil Donahue. Uh, you're maybe too young to-, to No, no, that. I know, don't put me uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was, the, he was sort of the original Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. And he brought, he would frequently bring psychologists on to either talk about a particular struggle people have or to answer questions from the audience. And, and that's when I, I mean, you know, uh, the, growing up in the uh, 60s in Charleston, people did not talk about psychology or psychotherapy. And that's where I realized there was such a thing as clinical psychologists. And I was fascinated listening to them talk about what they did and how they helped people and what kinds of problems people came in with. And I thought that's really what I want to do. I want to sit in a room and help people and listen to their life. And, and uh, so the research thing was kind of a fling. I, I, uh, I got into that um, and enjoyed it. But I, I think all along, I, I sort of thought I was going to head to uh, opening my own practice. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like very early on, you kind of had a good idea that, Hey, I want to do this and you want to open up your own business once you, uh, uh receive your, uh, um, uh, attain your PhD. And so it's kind of everybody, as you said earlier, everybody has a different uh, experience. And so some people don't realize that until later in, in their graduate careers, some of them also figure that out earlier. So, uh, based on my research and, and uh, how many chapters I've read of your book, I believe you attended, uh, you received your master's degree in experimental psychology at North Carolina. Is that correct? Well, that, that actually, has, that's, a, that's a fictional component to that. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually, uh, the year after getting my undergraduate degree in psychology, I worked in a research lab and did a lot of statistical uh, work. And so I, I sort of characterized it that way in the book, because that actually helped me get into graduate school. The fact that I was a very competent researcher and uh, actually worked with a lot of the graduate students and faculty helping them design or uh, uh, conduct their statistical experimental uh, analyses. Um, but uh, the, the program at South Carolina at the time, and it may still be this way, uh, didn't have a master's at the end of two years, you did a uh, comprehensive review of the literature in some area, research area, and you presented that, you wrote that, and uh, uh, fac a few faculty member members would read it, and then you would present that, uh, and they would ask you questions about it and pass or fail you. And that was sort of the equivalent of the master's, but I think the thinking was they didn't want people to get a master's and then leave. Right. You know, they, they saw it more at that time. Uh, they saw it more as we, we, we want, we're putting out PhDs and mm -hmm. we don't want uh, that particular program at that time, at least didn't want terminal masters. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes more sense now that I'm looking at my uh, little cheat sheet here and my notes and, and how much I've read of the book. 
How did you choose? Um, I, I didn't see in the book or, or read uh, any place else. How did you choose uh, to attend the University of um, South Carolina for your PhD? Yeah, it was more uh, geographical desirability. I was already there working in that lab and, uh, you know, had met some faculty and uh, really liked a couple of them and knew what kind of research they were doing. Uh, and uh, basically knew them as people and really liked them. And that was important to me. And, and so I really didn't even apply anywhere else. I was planning if I didn't get in, I was going to stay another year in that lab because I was being paid there and, uh, and then apply to 10 or 12 places or whatever, but I did get in. And so I, uh, but it was, it was really based on the people and the kind of work they were doing and, and, and I was already living there. And so it was desirable to just stay there. It, it, it's almost like it was meant to be. You just applied to one and you enjoyed yourself there and wanted to continue. Back when you were attending, did they even offer a PsyD uh, in the no, program? No, they didn't. Okay. I had not heard of a PsyD because, uh, you know, the book, of course, is fiction. It starts more in the late 80s. I started graduate school in the early 80s. I, I didn't hear about PsyDs until probably toward the end of my graduate school. Uh, you started hearing there was one in New Jersey. I think uh, Rutgers had one that had a good reputation and and then they started popping up in other places where I started hear, hearing about them in other places. So it wasn't a consideration of mine. I didn't even know about it. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's grown in popularity and, and yeah. not only popularity, but, you know, credential and integrity. And, and um, you know, a lot of our audience members want to ask and, and have me ask, well, how does, how does your guest decide between going the PsyD route and the PhD route? And, you know, off the top of your head, what are some of your uh, thoughts on how can someone decide if they want to go the PsyD versus the PhD yeah, yeah. route? Yeah. Well, let me say, I also see it as a totally legitimate credential. Uh, mm -hmm. the, in our practice, the 32 psychotherapists, uh, almost all of them are psychologists and probably at least a third have PsyDs. Uh, and and I, there's really no difference uh, in how they, they, not only how they function, but how they think and, uh, and, and uh, the, the kind of work they do. I, I would say, you know, my, my uh, thoughts are, if, if you know for sure you want to be a practitioner, uh, the PsyD is just as good as the PhD. If you think there's a chance you might want to go into academics or uh, even uh, going to academics, the PhD might be somewhat better, but the, I have a friend who's a very successful full professor uh, who has this ID, uh, you know, so it's not, it doesn't even preclude that, but you do get more immediate uh, or, or uh, year in and year out, you get more research experience, um, which I think uh, probably a lot of people don't want to get the PhD for that reason. But if you do have considerations for, you know, working in consulting or uh, academia, I think the PhD might be slightly better choice, but I really don't, that's not, that's just my opinion. I don't have a lot of experience with that. No problem. As you can see, I'm sharing your screen with, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, your, your business and you have over 30 clinicians and as you mentioned, some of them have PsyDs, some have PhDs, and then you have all the others that uh, have different credentials as well. Yeah, but uh, yeah. it's a good transition talking about, um, you know, your business. And, and number one is um, a lot of people look at the name of the business, Powers Ferry, as, well, your name isn't Powers or Ferry. And, and if you look <laughs> deeper into it, I think you came up with that name based on the original location That's in Marietta, well. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah. That, so yeah. it's interesting. And, and well, so... How did you know and when did you know that you wanted to, um, you know, start your own business? Was it uh, during grad school or when did you kind of figure out, hey, I want to do this. And then um, obviously I, I'll switch screens here and here's Dina. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pronounce her last name, Zeckhausen. Perfect. So Good. Perfect, yes. Yeah. So <laughs> it's yeah. interesting to, to read the book. And I, I try to figure out, as I was telling you before we started this uh, interview, 
I'm trying to figure out, well, which one is, is the one that uh, you mentioned in the book? And I won't spoil it, but uh, I, uh, I think I know who it is. But uh, right, right. tell me, tell me, um, you, you said that you met her in grad school and, and tell me a little bit more about that. And then was it both of your ideas to start the, the company and, and the practice or how did yeah. that idea come about? Yeah, uh, so I, I just quickly, I, I tell people never name your business after the street that you're on, because <laughs> you might open up another location, Right. but it's kind of stuck, and uh, Powers Ferry is a main road here in Atlanta that uh, goes for a long way, but uh, I met Dina uh, in, when I was ABD, um, and she was uh, probably a third or fourth year student, that's a little different than it's in the book. Um, uh, for Allie in the book, but uh, yeah, we, so we moved to Atlanta because she started, she was, I was finished and she was, uh, I had finished my PhD and she was doing her uh, clinical internship at the Georgia State Counseling Center, which she really liked. And she wanted to, <clears throat> it was one of the places that we were considering. We wanted to stay close to Columbia because my son was going to be living in Columbia that year. Uh, he was uh, probably about five or six when we moved to Atlanta. He ended up a year later moving here. Has what my ex-wife and him moved here, and we continued with joint custody. But anyway, we wanted to stay uh, somewhat close to Columbia, and Atlanta is a three or four-hour trip from Columbia. And uh, so uh, she chose Georgia State, and I went to work for a practice uh, in Marietta. And the practice, and then Dina joined the next year after she finished her internship, she had her PhD and she joined. And the practice was uh, not run the way we wanted to run it. Uh, wasn't, uh, there, were, there were problems we found in the way that the uh, administrative staff were treated. It was just not the kind of practice we wanted to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And I was in supervision then with a guy who, uh, who had been in practice for 30 or 40 years. And he encouraged me, you know, you're not happy where you are, go create something, you know, and, and uh, we're both nervous about it because, you know, we're, we're going to be losing our income, but we, uh, we did it and uh, a lot of our clients came with us, we located uh, seven or eight miles away from where we were, because uh, we had a no compete clause <laughs> that we had to uh, but we, you know, we started the practice and almost immediately, the thing my supervisor had said is that kind of positive energy that you'll have leaving and creating your own thing, it'll blossom, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, we believed in and we did and it did and, you know, it was good advice. And... Well, it sounds like it. I'm, I'm sharing the screen again and, and I'm sharing the homepage this time because you have a nice picture here of uh, most everybody I would imagine yeah, are on yeah. here and then here you are right in the middle and then Dina right next to you and then Correct. all of yeah. the uh, clinicians and as you can see on the uh, website here you have Buckhead, Marietta, Canton and then uh, South Forsyth is that how you pronounce it? Right correct yeah yeah. So how did you determine when it was time to create um uh, other locations. I mean, that you know, you're, you're wearing multiple hats. You're a clinician. You love right. doing that, but you're also a supervisor, a business manager. Uh, when you first started out, you and your partners probably had to come up with the advertising and, and figure out what to do there. So at what point did you know that it was time to expand and, and open up other locations? Yeah. Well, I think this will be a theme throughout when you ask about anything to do with my practice. Uh, it's usually organic the way things happen. We, uh, Dina and I lived in Buckhead uh, and our practice was in Marietta. And when we had our first child together, uh, we were gonna be working less. Each of us were gonna be working less. Um, and so we thought, well, one way to do it is to locate, uh, to get another office right by our house. And basically we opened an office about a half a mile from our house so we could come back and forth a lot easier to be with our kids and our nanny. Uh, and that, so that's how the Buckhead office opened up. And we added a, a few people at the Buckhead office. And then uh, we, had, uh, we were full and we had a, a woman who wanted to join our practice from Texas. And uh, so 
we didn't have any offices available full time. So she practiced in Marietta uh, half time and we opened up the office in Canton. So we'd have room for her there. And we got a few people there. And uh, uh, really the, the, the way South Forsyth came about is we had a psychologist working in Buckhead who lived in South Forsyth and she would drive in every day to Buckhead, which was a 45 minute drive. And uh, she started having back problems. And she said, I'm gonna have to locate, we need something out here. So we actually uh, purchased a small building out there and then we filled that one up. And that's sort of the, the story on how, and it's just, we've basically, you know, there's 32 now, we probably added one a year for 32 years. It's not mm -hmm. quite that, but that's pretty much how it uh, evolved. Well, that's a good background on how each of them came and, and its organic growth. And it was actually a convenience factor for a lot of your yeah, uh, clinicians yeah, as well. Yeah, so yeah. it worked out uh, well for everybody involved. I'm, I'm going to go back to your experiences at USC. Uh, I know, well, I, I shouldn't say I know, but based on what I've read in the book, I, I can probably tell what some of your fondest memories are while uh -huh. attending, but I, I wanna ask you, cause some of it might be uh, fiction in the book, but what were some of your fondest memories when attending USC? Yeah, um, I'd say uh, the top thing is the relationships I had with people. Uh, I, there, there was really, uh, there were a few professors there, uh, you know, that I, I dedicated my book to several of them who were outstanding human beings that I got to hang around with for several years and learn from not only about how to be a therapist, but, <clears throat> but also how to be an adult and, and how to uh, conduct your life. And, and uh, so really the, the, the people, the, some of the students, uh, uh, there, was a, uh, there was a bar that was right down the street from the Psychological Services Center that a lot of the graduate students from a lot of different programs hung out in called yesterdays. And uh, I had some of my best time sitting, having a beer, talking to people from different disciplines, different graduate programs, and uh, just about, you know, what they were learning and, you know, just, and having fun, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I really had a great time in graduate school. I, I, uh, that's one reason I wrote the book is for me, it was uh, a, primary part of my life and uh, important part of my life. Well, I told you before we started recording that uh, I, I really am enjoying the book. I'm about a third of the way through. And you mentioned that you did uh, acknowledge and, and dedicate some of the and mention some of the uh, professors. And um, I'm sharing the uh, acknowledgments page of the book right now. And um, here are the professors that you, you wanted to acknowledge here. And, and Herman Salzberg, Bob Heckel, Randy Engel, and Bob uh, De, Desoc, sure. Dysock. 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 There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it sounds like those were critical uh, um, people in your life at the time. And, and uh, are you still in touch with most of them? Uh, I have been actually through the book. Mm -hmm. uh well you know when the book when when i published the book i sent him a copy and i talked to him. bob heckle who is uh by the way ed in the book i don't know if you've gotten that far but mm -hmm. um he is now uh he he died uh, a couple years ago i i spent a little bit of time with him right before he died uh he was he was in his uh he was 91 i think when he died but uh uh, those guys have uh, gotten older. Uh, Randy Engel is actually a professor at Georgia Tech and a very well-known psychologist now. And uh, but they're all great guys. And yeah, yeah, appreciate you sharing them. Yep. And and uh, Ed was actually the first of the four that you introduced in the book, as I recall. He uh, uh, was the co-director of the clinical training at in the book Georgia University. Right. And um, it brings up the next question that I have for you is um, based on the book, and I'm not sure if this was reality for you or not, but uh, Ed mentioned that only eight out of the 400 applicants were selected for the PhD program. And uh, that's when he mentioned only about 50% of them have a mix of personality 
and emotional and intellectual skills to be good clinicians. The other half of the students will go on into research or teaching. And so that's kind of where I, I got that from. Was that based on reality? Were there actually 400 applicants or? or um... Yeah, I, I mean, I picked 400, uh, maybe uh, somewhere between 300 and 500. Because uh, I was involved as a student in helping select graduate students uh, in years after that. For a couple of years, I was on a committee that uh, scored some of the applicants, and we always got several hundred. Mm-hmm. A lot, some of those wouldn't be complete applications. Some wouldn't have certain numbers to reach criteria. But usually, about you usually were in, end up with about a hundred uh, solid applications that met criteria, and then and then the professors would. Uh, rate them on a lot of different things and come up with eight or 10 graduate students that uh, they wanted to select. So very competitive. I know when I uh, applied for my master's and my uh, doctorate as well, it was competitive as well. Uh, you had to put your best foot forward. Um, so with that in mind, what are, what are some things to consider or any advice that you would have to students um, if they wanted to uh, go on for their master's or their doctorate degree. So any advice that you would have for them? Well, you know, it's interesting. I just got through going through this with uh, my son is getting his PhD in industrial organizational psychology at Georgia Tech now. So I just went through kind of watching him apply and, and how that whole process worked. And I think more than ever, they want to see some really serious undergraduate research, you mm-hmm. know, where you've worked with a faculty member and maybe even gotten your name on a publication or something, you know, mm-hmm. which is, you know, really is pretty intense what they expect an undergraduate student to have come up with. Uh, but yeah, I think you, you want to get involved with an undergraduate professor that will be your advocate. You want to, uh, you definitely, and, and at least in most programs, not all master's uh, counseling type programs, but in most master's and PhD programs, they're going to want to see that you've done some research uh, and, and the more traditional academic a program is, the more they're going to want that kind of research done. But I think they're also looking for life experience and, and uh, people to be able to communicate with them, both uh, written and, and uh, when they talk to them, if they do interviews in a way that's, uh, that shows maturity. And, you know, uh, so, uh, I, think, I think I saw that you, you, you've done some training for people in uh, public speaking and stuff like that. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yep, exactly right. I, I think that people getting that level of skill, uh, again, both written, but also uh, verbal skills for if they are interviewed. And a lot of places are doing that more than they did it when I was uh, going through the process. But, you know, they want to hear that you can talk, you know, that you can, uh, that you're confident enough to, and I, you know, again, I think that's very tough for a 22-year-old or a 23 or four-year-old to be talking to a PhD, you know, in a video interview and be confident. Mm-hmm. But the I, but I have my impression is these kids these days are are uh, uh, are actually pretty good at that sort of thing. But it is I think it's a critical skill to have too. Well, good. I know that some of your you know talking about experience. I saw that you were um, you did your clinical internship at Medical University of I think it was South, South Carolina. Carolina. Yeah. Uh, tell us how you found that opportunity and tell us a little bit more what you got and how that helped you. Yeah. Well, I wanted, again, I, you know, because my son was uh, at that time, probably three or four or five, I don't remember exactly how old he was, but I wanted to stay close enough to him. So I applied in a regional sort of situation and I wanted to go to a medical university. I had had a pretty good bit of experience. I'd worked in a prison, which is in the book. Uh, and I had worked at a, a youth services doing assessments of uh, kids that had committed crime and crimes. And I'd done sort of outpatient stuff at a university counseling center. But I wanted more uh, uh, inpatient psychiatry and uh, 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 a little more medicalized. I wanted to do sort of, uh, you know, I wanted, I hoped 
to work in an emergency room and you know see a variety of different types of people and medical university really gives you that uh experience and uh South Carolina was, uh, Medical University of South Carolina was a good choice and had a great year there and met a lot of great people. I'm still in contact with a few of them. And, uh, but that, that, you know, it was, it was really just the variety of experience and the uh, geographic desirability. Well, in terms of experience, I'm gonna share my screen one more time. Well, probably more than one more time, but I'll, I'll share it again here. And, and here's your opportunity to tell us, how is your business, how is Powers Ferry Psychological Associates different from others? I see that um, on, let's go right here. Let's make sure that I am sharing here. Yep, I think we're on the right one. On the left side here, you see services. And as I mentioned in the intro, you have assessment, uh, psychotherapy, and then special services, even down to Spanish-speaking therapists, other things. So how is your practice different from others? Well, I think, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, for one, we, uh, as I said, we added organically. Um, uh, and uh, we're really a group of equals um, rather than a, a, a top-down kind of thing. We describe ourselves to when we're interviewing prospective therapists to join the practice as uh, as much a co-op as a business. Mm -hmm. So every person pays in our practice into the overhead based on what they use. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you use an office two days a week, you pay two fifths of what that office uh, cost is. Mm -hmm. So it really, you know, a lot of practices take an arbitrary percentage from their uh, therapist, or they pay them a salary. And the people at the top are making significant amount of money off of the therapist. Uh, uh, that's not the way we do things. And, uh, uh, and we also uh, have added people based on what we didn't have in a lot mm -hmm. of cases, so that we really fill out the, uh, there's very few people that, um, uh, that need a specialty that we don't have, mm -hmm. uh, because we've been very, uh, uh, and we've all, we also interview based on, uh, do we like and trust this person more so than looking at them as a, uh, resume. We really, uh, and we do, we do talk to their, uh, you know, previous uh, employers or uh, uh, other people they've been affiliated with, but we really are looking for people we like, trust, and uh, feel bring, bring something unique to the practice. And so, I mean, we've, uh, we've really filled our practice with people who are good people, and we've had almost no problems uh, uh, interpersonally with people. Uh, we also uh, began maybe 10 or 15 years ago, getting really good at hiring administrators. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see, what we do is we hire administrators and we see them the way we see our clients as a work in progress, people to grow. Uh, we, we hired a person at the very bottom level who now has just finished her master's. She's gonna be an LPC and join our practice after she does an internship. But she started as a, uh, a receptionist, and she's now uh, she became our business manager. But while she was doing that, she was getting her master's in uh, counseling psychology. So we're we're you know we really see uh, we really see ourselves as a community, a, a healthy community. And uh, shockingly, a lot of practices aren't run that way. Yeah, I, I like your approach. And I could tell based on the uh, growth that you mentioned, and then just looking at the uh, um, all of the experience um, from all the different clinicians on there as well. Back in I think it was 1989, you co founded the business with uh, um, and, and one thing that that came to mind for me is, you know, what were some of the biggest challenges? Uh, associated with starting the business. Um, I know that uh, you kind of mentioned one already, Dr. Rose, was that you, you weren't satisfied and you, and you didn't like the way where you were working, how that was run 
and you wanted to do your own thing. And so that's one thing. But what were some of the challenges that were associated with starting a business? Well, you know, of course, you have to rent a place, so you have to figure out how to do that, um, which is pretty easy. But the, the main challenge is finding out, getting administrators, and we only had one at the time, but that you can uh, trust to handle the billing of for insurance companies, because some of us were, on, a lot of us in this practice do a lot of insurance billing. Um, so you have to have somebody that does that competently. Uh, then you have to have somebody that does deposits. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, accounting kinds of things that I don't have any expertise in and still don't. Uh, you know, I, I, again, we have a business manager that does a lot of that. Uh, we have an insurance specialist and a couple other people that do work with it. But yeah, the, the, the hardest thing for me in the first 10 years uh, was figuring out the relationship with administrators. As I said, I want them to grow and be thrilled with their job and you know, be in a good situation for themselves and their family. But I also found that uh, there's sort of, if you're too close to them, uh, it, it, uh, it uh, becomes sort of a dual relationship or it muddies the water in terms of how much you can do as a supervisor of them. Um, and so the first 10 years was sort of working that out. Uh, and it wasn't, it was an uneven process. So my wife and I started Powers Ferry. Uh, we were then joined by Steve Perlow, who had a practice in Chicago and came down and joined us. And he has become, a, he and I managed the practice. So he and I worked on this administrative thing and, you know, have 30 years of experience now doing it. And you want to be close and caring and have that community thing, but you also are their supervisor. And so you don't want them to get too, uh, uh, you don't want it to be a situation where you can't confront and can't uh, 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 supervise them and help them grow. Uh, you know, you have to be critical sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of the same skills I teach people in couples therapy uh, how to um, put in put in the positives so that you can bring up the negative, uh, and if you put enough positives, the negatives don't sting as much. That's sort of one of the models we use with the administrators. If you think something positive about them, speak it, and that's sort of what you know. I tell couples that if you think your wife or husband looks good, tell him. Don't just think it. You know, if you think they said something funny, you know, and you laugh you know, underscore it by saying, man, you're funny, you know, or so, you know, put in that positive rather than just thinking it. Oh, that's uh, good and, advice. Yeah, yeah. Great advice. Yeah. So I, we're going to switch to the book now. Uh, as I mentioned, Bird Got a Land, The Education of a Young Psychologist, which uh, in my own words here, uh, based on the uh, um, probably six, seven chapters that I've gone into the book, it's about one's man, one man's personal and professional development or journey. On the other hand, we learn more about the protagonist and, and a, graduate, a graduate student in clinical psychology, and we learn more about the characters. And at the very beginning, there were seven other, you know, grad students in that program. And then, of course, we learn more about the uh, professors there. But it's kind of interesting to see how everything has been uh, transformative and, and moving, um, not only on a personal you know, level, but on an academic or your, your academic journey. Um, tell us why you wrote it. You mentioned a little bit earlier, but tell us why you wrote this. And, and just for the listeners and, and uh, um, you know, the readers of the book, I read somewhere where you actually started writing this book in 1996. So it, it slowly, you know, <laughs> you slowly added everything to it. So tell us why you wrote it. Yeah. Well, when I was in graduate school, I had the original idea to write it, which was in the mid 80s. So a long time ago, uh, I, I thought that the experience was fascinating, that the uh, that uh, learning to help people is actually a little more complicated than you might think. And I wanted to show how that uh, how, how, how that process worked. Um, I also wanted to 
tell the sort of uh, love story of my wife and I uh, meeting in graduate school. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to show uh, a process of a person going from where I think a lot of people live, which is sort of a little detached, a little, uh, a little shut down or cut off, going from that to somebody who's fully present and alive, um, mindful is the, the description people use now. Uh, and I think that's sort of what the character does is, uh, is go from uh, sort of a detached, uh, sort of lost, he's gone through a divorce, parents have gone through a divorce, he's a little bit lost, he's, you know, smoking pot to try to feel a little better, you know, and uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, trying to find himself and, and he does in the, in the book. And I think I did in my graduate experience uh, go through that and, and I wanted to be able to show that. Well, you kind of answered my next question. Um, you know, parts of it uh, are, are fictional, parts are based on real life. I believe the target audience is, is younger students and professors, maybe in their 20s and 30s. Um, and what were I was going to ask, what were your hopes for this novel and, and how would it benefit them? You kind of answered a little bit, but that's more of a targeted question. Yeah. Uh, anything yeah. to add? Well, I would say uh, I want I, I, the target uh, for me is psychotherapists because it, it does look at supervision and a way to conceptualize clients. You haven't gotten to it yet, but a, a narrative therapy model of how to understand what people are going through and the kind of obstacles they face to changing and how people get stuck and how you can help get them unstuck. So that, that really is a, a meditation or a, a discussion of psychotherapy. And I think it's also been good. Uh, I've had some of my clients have read it and have felt like it was really good for them to understand their own process of change. So I say it's good for uh, people going through psych psychotherapy. But really, if it, if it was a super targeted group, it would be, I think your audience, actually, people who are thinking about going in graduate school and kind of want to uh sort of live vicariously through someone who's already done it as well as people who are in it that might want to uh it might help them reflect on their own experience but that really those those were the people i really thought about while i was writing it but the the narrative therapy part of it and the uh uh some of the ways the clients are conceptualized in the book that was uh also important to me for therapists and it's interesting that you mentioned the narrative because in chapter two, uh, I'm sharing my screen, uh, Ed, the main, uh, the first professor that we are introduced to in the book, says that I describe my orientation to therapy and supervision as narrative and aesthetic. So what do I mean by narrative and aesthetic? For me, psycho psychotherapy is a process of helping the client gradually live a deeper and sometimes improved version of their life by helping them learn to adapt to new much more creative stories of their life. It's this new creative story that makes up the narrative aesthetic. Uh, this will become clearer with time. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost as if it has come to fruition for you and all of your clinicians because you're, you're trying to develop that narrative with your clients as well. Um, so I found that, you know, even before, uh, um, you know, getting ready for this uh, interview, I, I, highlighted that because it, it, I think that's important more and more um, psychotherapists and, and take that approach instead of just here's question one, two, three, four. Let's try to diagnose right away and get down to it. And uh, there's so many things I could bring up about the book, but I know that we have uh, uh, about five, 10 more minutes left. So I wanted to get to a couple other uh, key questions here. Number one is uh, you already recognized in the acknowledgments uh, four or five of those professors if they happen to watch or listen to this podcast, what would you like to say to them? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I said it there in the acknowledgments, but, and I said it when we talked about them, but you know, they, they through, through watching them as people, but also interacting with them, not only in classes, but uh, uh, playing sports with them and hanging out with them and stuff, 
they they uh, they helped me not only as a psychologist but become really uh, a different sort of man than I would have been. Uh, I think uh, the uh, the the uniqueness of those four guys is how incredibly open they were as people uh, and uh, uh, just authentic and available, connected people. And, uh, you know, I, uh, was, that was unique. I mean, I had been around a little of that growing up, you know, and, uh, but, but just to see people living fully, complete lives, uh, not being held back by uh, different beliefs they had, you know, I got to see that watching them and uh, it changed me, you know. Well, thank you. I, I, I found the discussion questions at the end of the book very interesting because you could view them uh, in two, one of two ways. Number one, uh, use for a book club discussion, you know, um, or I also found some of them could be used for self-reflection and awakening for the reader because you do kind of ask some of those uh, poignant questions how would this apply to you? Um, you know, reflect on what you're going through in your life now. And so I found it interesting that some of those questions could be seen in, in both those. I'm going to bring you down uh, memory lane for a second. Uh, in chapter one, uh, you actually mention an old car that you had. And I don't know if this is real or fiction, but it was a 1969 Carmen. Uh, is it pronounced Gia? Convertible? Carmen Gia. Okay. You don't remember and those? I, I, I don't remember him as probably as well as you do, but I'm going to share my screen. And uh, I did a little research on there. And back in 1969, you said it was about a 20 year old. So it would have yeah. been uh, about was, a 69 right here. Do you remember what color it was? It was green. It was set. I saw it on there. Uh, okay. So it was probably on here. It was probably. Yeah. It's the one. It's just the second one. Yeah. That's yeah, the right exact car. There you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that car served me well. Well, good. I, I did also find out if you had this in good or, or uh, excellent condition now, it would be anywhere from eighteen to $25,000. I know. I would but, love uh, to have that car. <laughs> My dad uh, actually had an MG, an old MG convertible, oh, wow. which yeah, is very yeah. similar to this. Very so, similar. Uh, very similar. Uh, I wanted to share that. So, uh, no, yeah. I love some of the older cars. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I saw one... Um, so far in the chapters that I've seen, I've seen a couple of things coming out. One is the symbolism of birds, excuse me, birds uh, appears throughout the novel so far, and then as well as the prison metaphor. And so can you speak to either one of those? Uh, why you incorporated those? Well, the, the prison, so you've gotten to the prison chapter. Uh, so the prison metaphor, the whole uh, the client that's in prison or the patient that's in prison is in a psychiatric unit prison. Uh, and it's a metaphor for he's stuck in this. It's a metaphor in a true story or reality. He's stuck in this prison because he, uh, when he comes up for parole, he goes crazy. He becomes very psychotic. He's psychotic throughout, but he becomes more psychotic. And uh, the notion is he do, he can't imagine a life on the outside because and and this is based on a true story he killed his cousin and he's from a really small town in south carolina and uh so he can't go home and if he can't go home and and he's from this little rural town uh farm town he he doesn't know he doesn't he can't imagine a life outside of the prison and so many people, people who come in for therapy frequently change and leave and, or, or stay and try to change other things. But some are stuck. And you'll find when you read further, Stephen, the protagonist in the book, is stuck too. He's just stuck in something different. He's stuck finishing his dissertation and the stuff blocking him from finishing. But people that actually get stuck need the therapist to not just give them little ways to get unstuck, but actually try to transform their narrative from feeling like these obstacles are so big, uh, uh, you know, being in a prison, to being free and imagining what it's like to be free. There's always mm -hmm. something that people are afraid of, not only afraid of uh, the change uh, or afraid of whatever obstacles right in front of them, they're also afraid of life after that obstacle. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, you know, the fear of success and the fear of failure uh, are usually there on for 
uh, both there for people. And so, you know, the prison is sort of a, a, a metaphor for being stuck. Um, the bird thing, uh, you know, the poem by Kurt Vonnegut, which uh, uh, is, uh, is, is about human nature, animal nature, you know, I'll go ahead and say a bird got a, a bird got a, a tiger got a hunt, bird got a fly, man got to sit and wonder why, 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 mm -hmm. tiger got to eat, bird got to land, man got to tell himself that he understand. And so, you know, psychotherapy is about landing or, or becoming mindful is about landing for me. Uh, uh, just as a uh, man has to tell himself he understand. And when you kind of feel like you understand, even if it's a myth that you understand, but you tell yourself you understand, you become mindful. You become more centered. You become this thing that we all want for ourselves. And so Bird Got a Land, I took from that poem. And, uh, uh, and, and the birds showing up a, or, or related to that, but also I, I think, you know, you can walk out here, I guess squirrels are like this too, but anywhere you go, you see birds. They're all around us all the time. And we just, there are these wild creatures that are, and to me, they, if you watch them, they're fully present. They mm -hmm. have to be, of course. And one of the things that I think psychotherapy has directed itself to and successfully so is helping people become more present. Mm -hmm. uh, I I do have a follow-up question, last question about the book, and then I'll ask a couple other uh, kind of fun questions that I usually ask most of my guests. Um, early in the book, I can't remember what chapter, but uh, Stephen, the, the protagonist uh, in the book, uh, recalls his father's advice. One advice at that point in the book was uh, the spinning top analogy. Um, you know, once you, you get the top knocked off center, uh, the wobbling top is more easy to be knocked over. Is that uh, based on fiction or did your father actually give you that advice? Well, that was actually uh, 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 Dan, one of the characters in the book, his father's uh, oh, okay. advice to him. And that was the idea of how to keep uh, his father, who uh, was not a warm, loving person, uh, how to keep people off guard. Okay. Uh, how to... Uh, basically how to stay in control of people. Okay. And the reason that was an entrepreneur that, you know, but, right. Uh, the reason that I brought that up is earlier, you were saying that some people needed a nudge and I uh, started to think that analogy could actually be, a, you know, uh, applied in that situation as well. Uh, yeah. But you're right. Uh, thank you for correcting me. It was, it was Dan's uh, father and uh, he was just asking some questions just to get you off kilter a little bit right, at the very right, beginning right, when right, you, right. when you met him. So some if, of the fun if, questions. If they're off kilter and they feel, yeah. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. If they're all off kilter and they feel wobbly, you're now you're in control. You can move them, mm -hmm. and that's the that's the, that was a, actually a, a, an entrepreneur told me told me that about uh, how he operated. I, I would never operate that way, but it's uh, but I get it. Right. You know. So uh, I only have a few other questions here. I know that you have to get going, but one question that I, uh, getting back to reality, not fiction or the book, but tell us uh, what you love most about your job currently. Um, yeah. What do you love? Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I really, uh, as a psycho psychotherapy, I'm really wired for it. Yeah, I'm a little ADD. I can be all over the place at times and sitting one-on-one -on -one with somebody is perfect for me. Uh, there's no distractions, um, and I really, I really like getting to know all these different people I get to know and hearing their stories and being involved in helping them create a better life. I mean, there's, there's almost nothing more gratifying than that. Uh, and, you know, I get that feedback sometimes, not as much as I wish, but people will either write me or they'll be continuing to see me. And just say it, you know, you've, you've changed my life or this work has changed my life. It's really not even me. I mean, I honestly, I do take some credit for it, but the one-on-one -on -one discussing someone's life and connecting to them uh, is very gratifying on both sides, you know. 
as the the teacher in me, I was a teacher for a number of years. I can relate to that when I see my uh, students uh, growing and seeing the light bulb and even having them come afterwards, years after I had them in my classes say, I remember you and you changed my life because of this. And, and uh, I understand how gratifying that can be. Uh, one fun question that I usually ask most of my guests is what is your favorite term, principle or theory and why? Well, uh, yeah, um, I'll go back to the narrative uh, therapy uh, notion. The idea that, our, uh, that the stories we live in our lives uh, are, uh, have obstacles and opportunities that, uh, that, are, that are kind of make-believe. They're based on our earlier stories or stuff we were taught in our families or stuff we learned in some experience growing up. And we believe and therefore we live that story. And those stories usually work until they don't. And uh, the narrative therapy you know, listens to the way people describe something completely different than we normally listen. What, what are they saying that are obstacles and are they really obstacles? You know, is there really something that they're describing in their life, in their day-to-day -day life, in their relationships, in their work, that, uh, that's just based on an old story instead mm -hmm. of just taking it for face value. Oh, this happened to you and, that's, uh, and that kept you from doing this, that must be rough. You know, you might say that, but you're also thinking, how can I help them see this a little differently so that it doesn't stop them, you know? Anyway, that's the that model, which uh, I learned about in 1996 at the time I started writing my book at a conference in Vancouver, uh, that, that model actually comes from uh, a couple of guys in Australia and New Zealand who were at this conference. And uh, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful way to think about your own life. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other advice for those interested in uh, the field of psychology or opening their own business or practice? Uh, no, I don't think anything I haven't already said. I think uh, you, uh, you do it and it'll work. You know, that, that, that if, you, if you really put yourself 100% into most anything, uh, you can create it. And, uh, the, uh, and there's such an incredible need for psychotherapy. I mean, the, especially these days with the coronavirus and all the stuff, all the craziness that's gone on in our culture in the last five years or whatever, uh, the, the need for psychotherapy has grown exponentially, really. And Is so there, there's a need out there. Just yeah, meet the need. I remember seeing and reading in multiple occasions where, um, you know, you can't really replace that one-on-one -on -one conversation, even through though it's, you know, might be through you know, virtual, like we're doing now, or in person, you can't really replace the, uh, the one on one discussions and narrative as you you've been talking about. Yeah, um, is there anything else that you'd like to bring up or discuss on this podcast? No, I, if, uh, if people listen to it and read the book and uh, want to get in touch with me, you know, I, I, I think we'll Maybe we'll make a, a email available. To, I love hearing. Uh, I've heard from lots of people that have read the book, and it's it's, uh, it's very gratifying to hear people's experience with it. And you know, I'd, lo I'd love to hear from you, Brad, when, when you finish it. And I hope to hear from people. And I've really enjoyed the interview. Thank you for asking some really good questions and great follow-ups. And I appreciate it. Well, I really appreciate your willingness to be uh, on the podcast and share your thoughts and, and advice and experiences. I will definitely follow up with you after I'm done reading the book. I, I am enjoying it uh, so far. I, I love the stories and the anecdotes and, and the uh, experiences that you're sharing. Um, I will definitely uh, post this on our website as well. And then the link and, and of course, your, your other links to your uh, uh, practice as well. Uh, and then links to Amazon and, and uh, um, other places where you can find the book as well. But thanks again for sharing uh, your time with us. Yeah. Um, I, I really appreciate everything that you've shared with us. Please stay in touch and I will uh, be in touch with you uh, shortly after I uh, finish the book as well. Okay. Well, thanks, Brad. Thank you. And enjoy the game. Yeah, thank you. I hope to. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.